Father in heaven, we've come down to the last few minutes we have to share together. And, and Lord, we want to savor each moment. We have sensed your spirit in this place. And we've been blessed. Our hearts have been watered. Our hearts have been fed. And we want to gather up the fragments that remain. We want to not miss a single blessing that you have for us. And yet, Father, we're dealing with sacred, divine, infinite truth. And we're but finite sinners and mortals. So today, Father, I pray that, that, I, that I might not be the speaker, but I just may be the spokesman. That I might be a messenger, but you would give the message. That your Holy Spirit today would speak to each heart. Lord, I may overemphasize or underemphasize, but may your spirit translate the words I speak to each person. They might hear what they need to hear in just the right perspective and balance. Today we know that you have a tremendous burden on your heart. You have an unfulfilled dream that you want to come and you want to claim us as your, as your own. And Lord, we just pray that we might take your dreams seriously. That we might not just have enjoyed a good conference, that we might leave here determined, that we might leave here with a purpose in our hearts to do something meaningful, to live more consecrated and committed lives to you. Lord, today I just pray that you'll take my lips, that you'll take my heart, that you'll forgive me for my sins, you'll hide me in the cross, that your word might be heard, that Jesus might be seen. In his name we pray. Amen. As I was thinking of what shame really is and what it means to be ashamed, one day I stopped in at Taco Bell to get a quick bite to eat. And at this particular Taco Bell on that evening, there was a group of junior high students that came in. And I was watching them with interest. They sort of grabbed my attention. It was a small Taco Bell, and it was pretty much just me and, and this group of students in the Taco Bell. As I was looking at these young teenagers, you know, I noticed that there was sort of something similar about all of them. They all had the same style of clothes. They were all wearing dark clothes, black clothes mostly, and they all had black hair, mostly obviously dyed black, artificial black. Most of them, at least the girls, had these black fingernails. You're starting to get a middle picture, right? What I'm describing. And they had piercings throughout their features. It made me wonder if they'd been too close to a hand grenade or something when it had gone off. There was metal all over their faces. And I was looking at them and I was thinking, you know, what makes a young person dress like this and look like this? I mean, I was thinking if you were to take one of those young, young people and put them in the middle of GYC, you all look so nice, they might feel sort of out of place, right? They might feel sort of ashamed. But the fact that there was six or eight or ten of them, I don't remember exactly, the fact that there were so many of them gave them this confidence and this unashamedness. You hear what I'm saying? Their peers around them looked like them. They dressed like them. They dyed their hair like them. And so for them, surrounded as they were by this group of their friends, for them, they thought they were normal. I was sitting there observing them and sort of thinking about this, and I realized they were looking at me and probably thinking I was really weird. <laughs> I mean, I was the one by myself. They had a whole group. The first thing I want us to notice about shame, we're going to look at just two things about shame this morning, but the first thing that I want us to notice about shame is that shame is not just a function of our own hearts. It requires somebody around us. Are you with me? If I'm by myself and I do something that's embarrassing, it's not embarrassing, right? I'm not ashamed. It's only if there are witnesses, somebody to see what I did, that's when I become ashamed. 
That's when I become ashamed. You know, I remember back some of the embarrassing moments in my life. And I remember one day I was with a friend. I was about that age, 13, 14 years old. And, and uh, I was with a friend and we were, it was on a Sabbath afternoon. We'd gone on a hike at a lake near our house. And um, my friend and I, he was about a year older than me, I think. And we were, we were picking up rocks and throwing them into the lake. And just about, I don't know, maybe 50 yards or less into the lake, there was a buoy. And we were trying to hit the buoy. You know how boys are. So we're taking these rocks and we're hurling them into the lake and trying to hit the buoy. The problem was the buoy was just about the, the limit of our range, you know? And so we were barely making it even that far into the lake, much less hitting the buoy. And as we were winding up and heaving those rocks as far as we could into the water, we were both standing there and this rock came from behind us, well over our heads. We watched as it flew far beyond the buoy and splashed into the lake. Now naturally, we wanted to find out who had thrown this rock. They had a good arm. We turned around and he wasn't there. She was. <laughs> and I still remember the shame and embarrassment as we were heaving in those rocks as far as we could and Jenny took a rock and effortlessly threw it way beyond where we could throw those rocks. Jenny was one of those girls. She was sort of every boy's dream and every boy's nightmare. <laughs> she was very feminine, long hair, pretty steel blue eyes, but you didn't want to meet her on a basketball court. When she had the ball and was driving for the basket, you had two choices. You either got out of the way, or you found yourself wondering, where did she come from? How did she do that? And why am I on the floor? <laughs> it was at a church camp out, and a spontaneous arm wrestling tournament broke out among the young boys. You know how boys are. I was probably one of the older boys, and so it really wasn't a very fair tournament, probably. But I remember rest, arm wrestling the pastor's son, Matt. And as we're arm wrestling, who do you think showed up on the testosterone-filled scene but Jenny? Now, with Jenny watching, you had no choice. You better win, right? And rarely, I'd been, rarely had I ever been so glad to have won an arm wrestling contest until Ginny stepped forward and said, I'll wrestle the winner. <laughs> now you talk about fear. I still remember squaring up with Jenny and looking at the faces of all the boys around the circle. <laughs> And the expression on their face said something like this, if she beats you, you're dead. <laughs> you've not only embarrassed yourself, you've disgraced the male gender for all time. <laughs> Shame is a function not only of what we experience in our own heart, but it's a function of the witnesses in the crowd around us. It requires somebody watching whose opinion matters to us. Are you with me? Shame requires somebody watching whose opinion matters to us. Now, by nature, we are people pleasers. We want to have others like us. We're concerned about what people think. We're influenced by the majority because we want to be on the side of the majority. Are you with me? Is that true or not? We care about the, what the majority cares about. And whether we like it or not, some of us may think, well, I'm not really influenced. But whether we like it or not, we're all influenced. You cannot choose not to be influenced. Daniel and Babylon could not choose to be not influenced. The only thing we can do is we can choose what influences we have around us. And so as I was thinking about these thoughts, 
I realize the problem is that we often have a skewed idea about the, what the majority is. Turn with me in your Bibles, and I'm sure you brought your Bibles this morning, to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. And we're going to look at one, only one instance, because we're really short on time this morning. 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to be looking at one instance of, of a change of paradigm, a change of perception of what the majority is. You see, in our society, in our thinking, we have this assumption that is made. The majority defines normality. Did you catch that? The majority defines normality. Isn't that sort of the way we operate? Normal for us is what the majority of the people do or think or act. For those, for those young friends in Taco Bell, normal for them was to dress like that because that's the way the majority of their friends were. So let's look here in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 15. This is the story of Elisha's servant. He went outside and he found that the Syrian army had surrounded the city. It says in verse 15, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servants said unto him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said something that didn't make any sense to those who heard it. And he answered, Fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. I mean, the servants looked around this little village of Dothan. It was hardly, it wasn't even a city. There were no walls. It was just a little community of houses. In those days, a village was probably a dozen houses or something like that. And here the whole Syrian army has encompassed the city. They weren't going to let Elisha get away. And Elisha says, don't be afraid, for those that are with us are more than those that are with them. Completely irrational. It didn't help the fear at all. Until Elisha prayed that prayer. He said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Bible says in verse 17, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. You see, what Elisha knew, I don't know if Elisha could actually see those horses and chariots of fire before he prayed this prayer. I don't know. Normally, prophets aren't just walking around, you know, viewing the unseen world, angels. But whether he saw them or not, Elisha knew something. Elisha knew that there are more on the side of God than there are here on this globe. Are you with me? In fact, it says in Acts of the Apostles, page 590, and I like this. It says, God is always a majority. You see, we are here living on this little globe, this little speck in a little solar system in a small galaxy in space. And we have this perception that those around us, not even the billion people that live in the Western world or whatever it is, we have this perception that the 20 or 30 or 40, 50 people that surround our circle of influence, they are normal. And they're not. We're not. When the rest of the universe looks down from space, because the Bible says we're made a spectacle unto angels, to worlds, and to, and to men, right? When the rest of the universe looks down from space and they see this planet, this is not normal. God defines normality. Are you with me? God is a majority, and God defines normality, and God and the billions of unfallen beings, when they see what's happening on this earth, they think this is not normal. Normality is not found in our circle of friends. Normality is found in the perceptions of God. Oh, but it's so difficult for us. It's so difficult for us to have an accurate, consistent perception that is equatable with the perceptions of God. It's difficult because around us, we're surrounded constantly by a world of sin, where sin becomes normal. What do you see when you turn on the television? You see cheating. You see lying. You see adultery. You see violence. You see selfishness and greed. 
It's normal in the business world. It's normal in the entertainment world. It's normal in the sports world. It's normal all around us, or at least we think it is. But when heaven looks at this world, it is anything but normal. It's anything but normal. And so, we have a little bit of a problem. I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter, of course. And I want to start by reading verses 32 and onward. It says, Hebrews 11, verse 32, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel of the prophets. Verse 33, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Now, so far, this life of faith sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, who wouldn't want to live a life of faith? Raw. I mean, the heroes. It sounds great, but if we continue on in verse 35, faith does not always lead to this overwhelming victory, at least not from a human perspective. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were what? tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in caves of the earth. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise." My question is, what would lead men and women to live a life of faith? To go through those type of discouraging situations, to go through those type of painful experiences, what would lead them to be rejected by their own people? What would lead them to be killed by their own church? I think the answer is, they caught sight of a perspective of normality that was heavenly. That was weak. They caught sight of a perspective of normality that was heavenly. Can you say amen? amen. You see, when, the, when Abel brought his more excellent sacrifice, he was doing it in the presence of his only peer. And he had peer pressure, you understand. But it wasn't, he didn't care so much what his older brother Cain thought about his sacrifice. What he cared was what God thought about his sacrifice. God defined normality for Abel, not Cain. And the same could be said throughout the, book, the chapter. You see, these were individuals who cared not about the world's opinion, they cared about God's opinion. Abel stood up against his only peer. Noah was willing to be the laughingstock of the world. Abraham was willing to separate from everything that was familiar. Though surrounded by the world, they cared not about the opinions of the world. Moses, it says, was willing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You see, if we turn with me back a few verses to verse 13, the Bible says these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I love this verse because it gives a four-step sequence that it takes in order for you to become a person of faith like Abel, like Abraham, like David, like Moses. What, was the four, what were the four steps that these men and women of faith went through as they became men and women of Hebrews chapter 11? The Bible says they saw the promises afar off. For them at first, just like for us at first, spiritual things almost seem illusory. They almost seem like a mirage. Is it real? Is heaven real? Is there really going to be a second coming? I mean, we're surrounded by the real things, right? We can feel them. We can touch them. We know that they're real. There's somebody sitting next to you. There's someone sitting in front of you and behind you. You know they're real. But that heaven that we talk about, that Jesus that we pray to, at first it seems as though, well, maybe it's just sort of mystical. Maybe it's just sort of imaginary. Is it real? 
The Bible says they saw the promises afar off, but the second step, they didn't stop there. The second step, the Bible says, they were persuaded of them. Do you see that? The first step is to see the promises. It's to know that there's a promise of a heaven. There's a promise of a second coming. But the second step is to be persuaded of them, to actually believe that it's real. There is a heaven. Jesus is coming again. There is going to be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. There is going to be an end of sorrow and suffering and sin. God is going to wipe every tear from every eye. Praise the Lord. They're persuaded of them. But there's another step. They took another step. They embraced them, the Bible says. Having seen them afar off, they, they then were persuaded of them, and then they embraced them. This became what they lived for. This became what their affections were set upon. Set not your affections on things of this world, but set your affections on things above. Those are the real things. So in these men and women of faith, there was a progression from seeing the promises afar off, believing them to be true, being persuaded of them, and then embracing them so that their, their heart, their affections, their life revolved around them. And I wonder today, at which point are we in this progression? Where are we? Are we still in the far off? Are we in the persuaded? Are we in the embraced? The final step, it says, after having seen them, being persuaded of them, and embracing them, it says they confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They weren't ashamed to be different. Normality is not here, they said. Normality is there. We're citizens of that country. And we're going to be normal in that country's eyes, not in this land's eyes. They were not afraid to confess. How do you confess? You're strangers and pilgrims. It's by the way you live your life. It's by the way you live your life. Four steps. The Bible says, continuing on in verse 14, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. You know, I've often thought about Enoch. Enoch is a symbol or a type of the last generation, right? GYC, are we wanting to be the last generation? We want Enoch to be our, our uh, type, and we want to be the antitype, right? Enoch was translated without seeing death. And I've often heard the little phrase, you know, the little story that says that Enoch and God were walking together for so long that one day God said, you know, we've been walking together for so long, we're closer to my house than yours, so why don't you just come with me? Well, I'd like to say it this way this morning. Maybe Enoch was walking so far with God that God said, you know what? Your understanding of normality is much more like heaven than on earth. You'll be more comfortable there than here, so why don't you just come home with me? And I think that's the experience that we need with GYC. We need the experience of God saying to us, your perception of normality has now become heaven's perception of normality. You're going to be more comfortable here than you will be down there, so why don't you come home? That's what I want. But if I have that experience, my friends, I'm going to be different from the world. You can't have both. You cannot have it both ways. It's one way or the other. And I'm convinced that the only way that we can have this experience of having our, heaven's normality become our normality is if, in fact, we're spending time each day in God's Word. The first step is what? Having seen the promises afar off. Where are those promises? Where are they, GYC? They're in God's Word. If you're not spending time in God's Word, if I'm not spending time with my Bible in front of me, if I'm not spending time in prayer, if I'm not spending time having the mind of God infused into my mind, I'll never begin thinking like He thinks. The only way heaven's normality becomes my normality is if I'm spending time in the Word of God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, the next chapter, and verse 1, and this is sort of the apex of my thoughts today. The Bible says in Hebrews 12 and verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You know, I used to read this verse, and I used to think that this cloud of witnesses that Paul's talking about, they exist by virtue of the fact that I was born after them. I mean, all those men and women of faith, they've gone before, so there's a cloud of witnesses that just surrounds me. By default. Then I looked at those kids in Taco Bell. And this is the question that comes to my mind. In what sense does the Hebrews' 11 cloud of witness encompass them? When they get dressed in the morning, are they thinking about Daniel? Are they thinking about the example of Moses? It seems to me like they have a totally different cloud of witnesses. And the second point that I want to make about shame. First is shame requires a witness, or witnesses, right? The second point is this. You choose your cloud of witnesses. Did you catch that? You choose your cloud of witnesses. You choose who is important to you, whose opinion really matters anyway. You choose who your heroes are, and you will become like your heroes. Your cloud of witnesses determines who you're ashamed or unashamed to be like. Those kids at Taco Bell, they were unashamed to dress that way because their cloud of witnesses was dressing that way too. Many heroes today, many Adventist young people have heroes that are the movie stars, the pop music stars, the fashion designers, the rich and the famous. And every day we're forming characters, habits, based upon our cloud of witnesses. You see, I really enjoyed last night David Asherick's meetings, meeting when he talked about character development. Did you enjoy that? It just, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit dovetails messages from one end of GYC to the other. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, how is it that character is formed in relationship to this cloud of witnesses? I mean, when I make a decision, I don't always make the exact same decision every day, of course, but I am making the same, I'm often making those decisions based upon the same motivating factors. Are you with me? In other words, if I go to choose to buy some clothes, let's say, and I'm going to buy a new pair of jeans or a new pair of slacks, I'm going to make a decision, and subconsciously, whether I know it or not, I'm just confessing, I'm a human being, and I think all of us have this probably trait. At some point, entering my reckoning of what I'm going to buy, comes the question, consciously or subconsciously, what are others going to think about this? Are you with me? And my decision-making, whether it's what I'm eating, what I'm listening to, what I'm watching, what I'm buying, my decision-making is largely influenced by the cloud of witnesses around me, right? Now, as I'm going to the store, I'm not making a habit every day of going to the same rack and buying the same pair of jeans, right? But I am forming the habit of going to, to the, each decision I make and making it upon the same basis of the cloud of witnesses that are around me. Are you with me? I'm forming habits each day. That is why in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, in the first angel's message, the first injunction, the first two words say, fear God. The fear of God is simply the opposite of the fear of man, right? The fear of man says, I don't know what I should do. Let me think what other people will say. Let me decide based upon what other people will think. And it's our cloud of witnesses that we are basing that upon, right? And it may be our, maybe our friends, it may be our coworkers, it may be our boyfriend, it may be our girlfriend, but it's people whose influence, whose opinion really matters. That's what we base our decisions on. And the first command of the everlasting gospel says, no, form a habit instead of basing decisions upon what people think and what people say, form a habit of basing decisions upon what God thinks, what God says. That's the fear of God. You cannot move beyond that first command of the everlasting gospel if you do not get first the fear of God in your heart. You're going to tell me that you're going to live your whole life 
Even if you're surrounded by Adventist friends, GYC friends, good clouds of witnesses, but you're forming a habit of making decisions based upon people. And all of a sudden, at the end of time, when you have to stand alone and the whole world is marshaled against the truth, you're all of a sudden going to make a decision based upon what God thinks? I don't think so. If you want to be faithful against the mark of the beast at the end of the third angel's message, you've got to have the fear of God, which is the first part of the first angel's message. And this is relevant for GYC, isn't it? We claim to be an army of young people on a message to take the three angels' message to the world, on a mission to take the three angels' message to the world in this generation. But we can't do it unless, first of all, we've taken the three angels' messages to heart. We need the fear of God in our hearts. We need to be making decisions based upon a cloud of witnesses that is not human around us, but based upon divine normality. That's the basis of decision-making for God's last day people. Every day when I'm making decision, my primary concern is what others will think, what others will react. My free time is spent the same way the world around me, my cloud of witnesses, spends its free time. My iPod is filled with the same music that Babylon around me listens to. My computer is filled with the same torrent downloaded movies that the world around me is watching. My bookshelves are full of the same books and magazines that my neighbor's bookshelves are full of. If I'm ashamed to be different in lifestyle matters, it indicates my cloud of witnesses, which is around me. My heroes are not savoring the things of God. And all of a sudden, when an opportunity for witness arises, I'm expected to be unashamed to be different. Is it going to work that way? There's not a fluke of character that every day allows you to make decisions based upon what people think, and then every once in a while, you get to make decisions based upon what God thinks. Those neural pathways need to be changed, my friends. So they become habits. They become our character. You know, this is one of the things that concerns me about GYC. Because sometimes I'm afraid we just come and we have a great conference. I watch. I watch a lot of young people. I listen to the seminars they go to. I watch the decisions they make. And sometimes it really concerns me. I'll just be honest with you. Sometimes it really concerns me. I'm thinking, what is the disconnect here? Like here at GYC, we really try to have a program that's Bible-based. Like the seminars, they're, they're trying to show the principles of the Bible and spirit of prophecy. These aren't GYC principles about music or entertainment or whatever it is. But the young people come and they say, rah, 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 GYC, come to GYC. GYC was great. And the life they're living is an absolute contradiction to everything that was taught at GYC. And it reminds me of Ezekiel 33. We won't take time to turn there. You can look later. God said to Ezekiel, you're like, a, you're like a musician that plays an instrument well, but people love to come hear you. They say, come, let's go hear Ezekiel preach. But they go back and they don't do what you say. Jesus quoted it in Matthew 15. These people draw nigh to me with my mouth, their mouths, right? But their hearts are far from me. Oh, I hope that's not GYC. I want to share with you a statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. It's actually a couple paragraphs. It says this, at the conference of Battle Creek, Michigan, May 27, 1856, I was shown in vision, vision some things that concern the church generally. The glory and majesty of God were made to pass before me. Said the angel, he is terrible in his majesty, yet you realize it not. Terrible in his anger, yet you offend him daily. Strive to enter into the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. These roads are distinct, separate, and in opposite directions. You get the mental picture, right? They're distinct, separate, and opposite directions. One leads to eternal life, the other to eternal death. 
I saw the distinction between these roads, also the distinction between the companies traveling them. The roads are opposite. One is broad and smooth, the other narrow and rugged. So the parties that travel them are opposite in character, in life, in dress, and in conversation. Did you catch that? Parties that travel the two roads, opposite roads, are opposite also in character, in life, in dress, and in conversation. Those who travel in the narrow way are talking of the joy and happiness they will have at the end of the journey. Maybe they actually have embraced the unseen things, right? They're talking about heaven. They, their countenances are often sad, yet often beam with a holy, sacred joy. They do not dress like the company in the broad road, nor talk like them, nor act like them. A pattern has been given them. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief opened the road for them and traveled it himself. His followers see his footsteps and are comforted and cheered. He went through safely. So can they if they follow in his footsteps. In the broad road, all are accompanied with their persons, their dress, and the pleasures in the way. They indulge freely in hilarity and glee and think not of their journey's end, of the certain destruction at the end of the path. Every day they approach nearer their destruction, yet they madly rash, rush on faster and faster. Oh, how dreadful this looked to me. But this next paragraph, this last paragraph, really catches my attention. I saw many traveling on this broad road. Which way is the broad road? The road that leads to destruction. I saw many traveling, many traveling in this broad road who had the words written on them, dead to the world. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye also ready. They looked like all the vain ones around them, except a shade of sadness which I noticed on their countenances. Their conversation was just like the thoughtless ones around them, but they would occasionally point with great satisfaction to the letters on their garments, calling for others to have the same upon theirs. They were doing outreach. They were in the Broadway, yet they professed to be of the number who were traveling the narrow way. Those around them would say, there is no distinction between us. We are alike. We dress and talk and act alike. I want to make something clear. You can change the way you dress and the way you talk, perhaps, and it won't save you. We're not talking about lifestyle changes being salvific or salvational. All right? We're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. But I want to make something clear. Your lifestyle may very well indicate which cloud of witnesses you're in. It may very well indicate what you're doing along that road, which road you're in. This is serious business. Someone is going to say, but, but why talk about reforming the life? It's because I believe at GYC we need to not only have a revival of spiritual godliness in our experience here. We need to have some changes in our lives when we get home. It says in the Review and Herald, February 25, 1902, a revival and a reformation must take place under the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Revival and reformation are two different things. Did you catch that? They're two different things. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of mind and heart, a resurrection from spiritual death. That's, I believe, what takes place at GYC. As I see what takes place, as I listen to the appeals, as I see the responses, I believe God is working a revival at GYC, and it thrills my heart. God's Spirit is moving. People are making decisions for Jesus. 
but a revival will not last that is not accompanied by a reformation. She goes on, she says, Reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in ideas and theories, habits and practices. Reformation will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it is connected with the revival of the Spirit. Revival and Reformation are to do their appointed work, and in doing this work, they must blend. If you have a revival without a Reformation, you very soon have a mere profession. Letters written on your garments, which you point to, and you say, come with us to GYC, you'll hear great speakers. If you have a Reformation without a revival, you have legalism. You're miserable, and you make everyone else around you miserable. We need both a revival and a reformation. A reformation is a reorganization of your life. So today, my friends, I think we need to think about what's going to happen when we get home. I really do. I think we need to think, where is my standard of normality coming from? This morning I'd like to make an appeal. I'd like to make a general appeal first. If you want to say, Lord, too often my, my standard of normality has been this cloud of witnesses around me instead of the cloud of witnesses of the unseen world. But beginning with this GYC, I want to have a paradigm shift. I want to choose Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11 and 12 to be my cloud of witnesses. If you'd like to see that this morning, why don't you stand where you are? We're saying today, I want my standard of normality to be based upon heaven's standard of normality. I want my standard of what should be done with my time, what should be done with my money, what should be done with my influence. I want to seek first the approval of God in those things. That's what we're talking about. I want to be so close to heaven's normality that Jesus can say to me, you know what, you'll be happier in heaven than you'd be on earth. Why don't you just come home? And you're standing here this morning because that is your decision. You're standing here this morning because that is your burden and that is your heart's desire. You're standing here this morning because you want your perspective to match the perspective of heaven. Is that your desire? Because you love Jesus. Because you want to be like Him. That's why you've made this decision. But this morning, I want to make a further appeal. I want to ask if there's somebody here who realizes that they're, they're not as far in this four-step process of seeing the promises, being persuaded of them, embracing them, and confessing them as they ought to be. And they realize that the only way they're going to move down that process is if they spend time in the Word of God. And so then my, my, my appeal now is, is there's somebody here who would like to say, in 2010, I want to spend more time in God's Word than I spent in 2009. I want my heart to be saturated with God's will, God's thoughts, not what's on television, not what's in the movies, not what's in popular culture. If there's somebody here that wants to say that this morning, I'd invite you to just make your way forward. To say, Lord, I want to go home, and I want to lay my Bible before you. I want to kneel in front of your sacred word, and I want to say, Lord, search my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's anything, any wicked way in me, anything in my lifestyle that I need to change. Are you willing to do that, my friends? Are you willing to say, Lord, 
Lead me in the way everlasting. If there's something in my lifestyle that I need to change, not because of legalism, not so that I'll earn your favor, not so that I'll have your grace, but because you revived my spirit and I want it to last. Lord, change my life. Are you willing to say that, my friends? You've come forward because you want to spend more time in God's Word. God sees your decision. God's going to help you. But when we talk about a reorganization, a reformation in our life, we must talk about some specific things. So I want to ask for some specific decisions to be made here. There's some of you that know that your iPods are full of music that is the devil's music. Your computers are full of movies. They're not bringing you for, closer to Jesus, and they're certainly not bringing you to a closer understanding of His normality. I want to ask for decisions. I want to ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. This is not a decision between you and me or between you and anyone around you. But if there's someone here while well, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. There's, there's someone here who wants to say, Lord, there's something in the entertainment area of my life, whether it's music or movies, whether it's that subscription to ESPN or something that is taking my time, it's consuming me, and it's changing my normality to be the normality of this world. If you want to say this morning, I want to work a reformation in my life when I go home, I want your power, I want your grace, I need your strength to make these changes, to lead these songs, just raise your hand right where you're at. You're saying, I want to make these changes in my life. I want a reformation. God bless you. God will give you strength when you make this decision. But if we leave here only being revived, without purposing in our hearts that we're going to delete that music, we're going to delete those movies, we're going to get rid of that television, whatever it is, I don't know. If we don't make that purpose in our heart, my friends, I'm afraid that reformation will never happen and this will be a revival that doesn't last. You can lower your hands. There may be some of us who need to make a reformation in other areas of our lives. And again, while your heads are still bowed and your eyes are still closed, I want to ask you if there's someone here that realizes in the area of their health, the way they keep their body temple, they need to change their habits and practices. They need a reorganization. I don't know what it is the Holy Spirit might be convicting you of, but it's very clear that a diet or a lifestyle affects our spiritual faculties. If you want a revival that lasts, you need a reformation in your lifestyle. And maybe it's going to bed earlier so you can get up and spend that time with Jesus in the morning. Maybe it's exercising so you have a clear mind and instead of being morose and depressed, you can have energy and happiness. Maybe there's articles of food that you know are not healthy. I don't know what it is, but if there's someone here that wants to say, Lord, I want to work a reorganization in my health, just raise your hand. Purpose in your heart right now and God will give you the strength and the blessing to make a reformation in your life as you return. You see, God knows each hand. You can lower your hands. God knows each hand. God knows each heart. And I believe that as we reorganize our lives as we go home, this revival from GYC 2009 will not only last us through 2010, this revival can be the beginning of an entire generation of people who look unto, looking unto Jesus lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets them and finish the race that God has set before us. Is that your desire? Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we are grateful. Oh, you've fed our hearts, you've watered our souls through this GYC. We don't want it to end and by God's grace, by your grace, it doesn't need to end. Lord, let this revival still burn in our hearts and burn brighter with each passing day. Lord, you've told us that a revival without a reformation or a reformation without a revival cannot accomplish what we need. We need them both. 
So today I just praise your name for the young people and older people alike who have made decisions to take what they've learned at this GYC, not just as pleasant words, not just as popular speakers, but as real principles they're going to live by. Lord, today I pray that you'll change our sense of normality to be like heavens. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see things the way you see them. That someday very soon you can say to us, you'll be happier in heaven than here. You can come and claim us as your own. Lord, right now I'm praying for someone who is struggling with a decision. Their standard of normality has been so skewed. Their cloud of witnesses is so pervasive and strong and influential in their life. They're afraid to make a decision for Jesus. Lord, please send your spirit to these souls. Help them even now to purpose in their hearts to change the things that need to be changed. And they know your spirit will show them. Lord, I'm praying for those who have made a decision, either in the area of entertainment or in the area of health. I'm praying that you will give them strength, Father, for the devil will not let them go easily. Those habits which have taken years to form will be difficult to change, but by your grace, with the Spirit, the power of the Spirit reviving their soul each day, with the power of your Word changing their sense of normality, they can be unashamed to live like heaven would live if it was here. Oh, Lord, prepare us for that eternity. Make us men and women of faith. Make us GYC, not just with letters on our garments, but help us to be on that narrow way, following in Jesus' footsteps. Thank you for going before us. Thank you for going behind us. Thank you for holding our hands. Thank you for giving us the strength. Lord, May we look to Jesus, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. May that be our experience today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.